One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, the first football podcast that we've recorded this week that hasn't featured a massive St. Bernard dog as one of the guests. Hello, Murphy Ken. Wait, sorry, wait a second, I'm just going to check the... Yeah, no, there's no, there's no mass gigantic St. No Bernard, Bernard in the studio now. Wasn't Bobby Sadler just wonderful on Sunday night at our 750th live show? And I know you're not a dog, I know you're more of a cat man. Yeah. But you gotta love that dog. And what age is what age is Bobby? She's uh, a beast. Uh, I think she's like six months or something. <laughs> Jesus. There's a lot of growing. Oh, I wow. mean, it's not just that she's going to get a little bigger, she's going to get a lot bigger. Hmm. She's so well behaved, not only on stage, where she basically slept yeah. through our chats, but also... Before, I think this is something you've witnessed actually in the office before, Murph. She refused to walk up the stairs. Richie well, was like, come on up the stairs. And the dog's like, no, you, you've, you've told me not to do that. You've specifically told me all my six months of my life so far not to go upstairs. So no, I'm not going to go upstairs. Yeah, Rich, Richie has trained her so that the stairs so well. just, <laughs> yeah. she, she will never go up the <laughs> she stairs. She takes a lot of shift and she got up there eventually, I think. But Well, I mean, well, I don't know, did she even walk up? I think she may have had to have been carried up. Like a, in a sedan chair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's fine. I mean, if you if that's what you want in your dog, I suppose that's fine. You know, just lie there, inert, uh, behaving sleeping yourself. all the time. Well, behavior. That's Some dog word, owners do value good behavior. I prefer yes. a little bit more life. That's all I'm saying. You know, a little bit more pizzazz, a little bit oh, more. Oh no, we're talking about your unintelligent dog again. Well, just because you can't, just because you literally can't train your dog to do anything, <laughs> you look down. You look down on a dog that's so well trained that it won't climb stairs even when you want it to. I'm, 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 listen, there are a lot, of, a lot of different ways to approach life. You know, I prefer free expression. Mm. You know, I don't know what totalitarian state Richie is running over there, quite frankly. that it, it, He has basically managed to zombify his own dog. A puppy. Mm. A puppy. Reduced to that. I mean, listen, it's fine. It's fine. However he wants. I don't want, I'm not you know, going to get involved. I have seen Kieran's dog. Bashing itself against the window Pickles. like a fly. Mm-hmm. That's how stupid we're talking. <laughs> like, uh, she misjudged the distance by, you know, a mil- by a millimeter. Ken. As we said, though, in Murph's absence, Ken, a beautiful dog. Mm. Another beautiful dog. There's no doubt about that. If you want to see video evidence of Bobby Sadler stealing the show on Sunday night, particularly during the live reading of Ken's The Fair View, we have live performance, well, way more than the live reading. Anyway, we've tweeted a nice clip of a couple of videos from the night. 
you just follow us at Second Captains, which you may well do already. Later in this podcast, we're going to talk to a leading sports lawyer in the UK, an Irishman by the name of Ian Lynham, who's worked with uh, a lot of top players, a lot of top clubs in well, in various sports uh, in England. But we're going to stick to football for the purposes of this chat largely. He's uh, you know involved in contract negotiations. Is a big, is uh, great ideas about how these things work, how they're changing, uh, even the use of data, sort of analytics in in how you potentially sell a player to a club, something that wouldn't have been thought about at all up until very recently. So we'll get into all that a little bit later on. But I've got an email in here from David Murphy entitled Podcast Wars. Dear Second Captains, given the dark times in which we live, it was inevitable the current global strife would violate the sanctity of the podcast. Is it safe to assume that John Giles and Eamon Dunphy's furious broadside against Ken in their recent episode of the, in their recent podcast, The Stand, 5th of the 12th, 2016, is the first shot fired in a new, bitter, vicious era of aural warfare? <laughs> I like that phrase. Will this moment prove to be this century's Sarajevo, 1914? Regards from David Murphy. Well, thank you very much for your email, David. I, I had picked up on this during the week. We better have a listen. Well, first of all, the, the, initially their chat was about Pep. Because he is, and even in a paper this morning, the Irish Times, there's a column by Ken Early in which he talks, he he actually accuses the Manchester City fans of letting Guardiola down because they were very uh, uneasy when they saw Otamendi and Stones exchanging a series of passes together going nowhere. So some journalists and some people in, in... have made a cult hero out of Guardiola. Mm. In other words, you can't question him. And I would question his attitude to defending. Well, this, this is his biggest... So fast forward a little bit. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this uh, opinion of Guardiola, um, doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. No, you know, that, that's a, that's a, it, that the press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. <laughs> but, uh, I think in Guardiola's case... Yes, indeed. That's John Giles, one of the greatest football men, if not the greatest football man this country's ever produced. Well, having a little pop at your, uh, your work. Well, he said necessarily. He said, yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. <laughs> well, that's a very important classification. To well, necessarily is, is, a, is, a, is a key word. Mm. You know, I mean, necessarily means I wouldn't always... Agree. You know, I wouldn't, by definition, agree with something simply because Karen Early of the Irish Times has said it. You know, mm. he retains a certain he 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 retains autonomy. You know, it's like sure, Ken has written this, but still, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Oh, it's sad that's to what watch. He, that's it's what he means. He's, um, Ken has received a lot of I praise mean, from football over the years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I do think that uh, uh, Eamon's original. Uh, summation of your article was a little off as well. <laughs> I mean, not only that, but the what's interesting note here. I did mention there was a fast fo- bit of fast forwarding. <laughs> Giles came. <laughs> there was there was quite a gap between. It wasn't as though Ken Early's mentioned and immediately. Yeah, it's it like, was well, three I minutes. Agree. Three minutes later, yeah. John Giles I mean, brought it back to Ken Early to explain that yeah. he wouldn't necessarily agree <laughs> with anything. There you go. So no, it's not a podcast where Ken's going to take it in a stride here. Stay out of my territory. <laughs> what the hell? Loud. That could have been, uh, I mean, I don't know, is that John Giles as Walter White? Mm. You know, I think, uh, um, a warning stay sign. Stay out of my territory. Or is it, you know, uh, you know, as podcast uh, kings? I think, I think we can take the most, uh, we can, we, we can uh, take a lead from the most effective piece of political campaigning of 2016 
when they go low, <laughs> we go high. Worked out for the other guys, so. Yeah. Report on sport. It always works. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when you, I thought the the use of, it's, it's interesting to see the effect that a, a word, a simple word, like accuse, <laughs> yeah. can have quite a transformative effect. <laughs> it's, it's a sort of, uh, it, it sort of seems an emotional sort of situation. I'm sort of uh, defending Pep. How dare they? Like a mother with her with her cub, you know, <laughs> a, a, a tiger, a tiger mother <laughs> defending her cub. Get away, get away from him, you know, to the um, to the great unwashed, uh, the braying morons uh, filling the the stands, the bleachers at the Etihad, and that's not really actually what I'm saying. Well, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's good to. To sort of sometimes put a little bit of a twist on things, just to get the conversation moving. I mean, the point there was about the uh, watching watching that game. The this is the City game on the weekend, uh, City against Chelsea. Um, when you see uh, Guar- uh, Guardiola's players playing the ball to each other around the back, and I don't mean playing. I mean, it's not as though Guardiola's team is the first ever to play the ball a bit around at the back. But usually when you say play it around the back, you mean sort of 35 yards from your goal. You know, kind of up the field a bit. Not the goalkeeper passing, exchanging a series of sideways passes five or six yards out from the goal line to a center, center half who's, down by the, who's out by the corner flag, which is what was happening. You know, Bravo and Stones just passing the ball to each other as Chelsea players are kind of pushing up on them. And you could hear the crowd starting, oh, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? Um, get rid of the ball. Um, and obviously, the Guardiola's teams aren't going to do that. Uh, he believes that you've got to work it out from the back. There's no, there's no point in just booting it up the field. That's You've done exactly the wrong thing. You've given the ball back to the other team in an advantageous situation. Do that, and, and it's going to go wrong. Do this. Learn how to do this, and it will work. Now, Guardiola's the only person who who, who is this extreme. You know, most people... see. What, what he's asking Stones, Bravo, Otamendi to do is not technically really that hard, but it is high risk. So it's a bit like, imagine you were walking along a path that was two foot wide. Is it difficult? Of course not, Ken. To stay on that path? <clears throat> no. Now imagine there's a sheer thousand foot drop either side of the path. There's no wind, but there is a thousand foot drop leading down to jagged rocks on either side. Of this of this path, and you, you simply have to walk along that path. How are you feeling? Well, how jagged are the rocks? Like, it doesn't matter really. It's They're the super jagged. It's the fall that will kill you, as uh, the Sundance Kid once said. But you will. There will be. There will be needle-like uh, jags oh, right. of rock protruding through the you know the the mess that's left behind at the bottom. You know, you know sharp. Mm. Right. Well, if they're that jagged, then yeah, I'd be nervy. I'd probably fall off. So you're nervous. Even though it's walking along a path that's two foot wide is a simple thing. You can do it, but with the risk of this going wrong, you know, one false step, and suddenly the, the stakes are raised, it creates a certain ooh, edginess about doing something which is actually not that difficult to do. You know, for a technically accomplished player like John Stones, it shouldn't be difficult. And so the, uh, uh, it's, it's difficult enough for a player to do that without then also... Ha- hearing the fear of, you know, 50,000 Man City fans, uh, some of whom were screaming, what are you doing? And, and others such assorted, some, sometimes even more insulting comments. So that's a difficult atmosphere in which to carry off this sort of high-wire 
act that Guardiola is looking for. And it wasn't really so much accusing the Man City fans of not knowing what football was about as saying that this is going to be a difficult thing to do in this environment. Unless Guardiola can somehow uh, obtain a complete cultural refit of you know, English football fans, which I think is going to be difficult even for him. I mean, he says, I don't want to change anything about your football. You know, It's going to be quite difficult for him, for his team, um, to, to play the kind of football he wants them to play in an environment which is discouraging. You know, that's not, it's not quite the same as saying these City fans know nothing. Um, it's just that, as Guardiola said himself about his time at Bayern, you know, I'm trying to do something countercultural. You know, the, the more recent um, Marty Pernau Guardiola book, we mentioned it briefly on, on Monday. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of it is about that sort of, he, he's talked about, oh, it's countercultural, what I'm trying to do. Um, in Germany, attacking is all about speed. You know, they want to see players run. They want to see quick attacks. They want to see lots of attacks, lots of shots. They don't necessarily want to see a team uh, play in a really organized way, move the ball. Like 15 passes, 15 passes minimum to establish a good situation on the ball in midfield. You don't think that they would be happy enough to absorb that if it starts going really well? If it's winning football... They're Man City, you know, it's not like they haven't got a hundred years of championship titles to sit back on, you know, you, you would th- and, and, to, and to identify a, a culture of the club. I mean, they're still, it's, that's still being built. I think it's really interesting that you make that exact point, because I think that's, that's although not something that Guardiola would, I, I'm sure, say in a press conference in England, but that's definitely one of the things, one of the reasons that he's at Man City. They're Man City. They're a blank slate. Mm. And, and reading this book, you get this... There's, there's a real sense that, that that's kind of how he sees them. Ah, uh, a sort of a football club-shaped canvas on which to um, express my dreams. But that's not really true. Man City are a football club. Now, they may, they, they, as you say, they, it's not like they've got, you know, we don't hear too much about the Man City way. No, you're not going to get it's not like the, the boot room. The old-timers from the 70s going ballistic. Um, you see Mike Summerby sometimes. Yeah. Um, but you know he's just delighted. He's delighted if Man City win. Yeah, fair, fair enough. But you know the, that's not to say the club is totally without culture. It's an English football club. It's a club in a football club in the north of England. You know, in a big industrial or post-industrial town, they have been watching football at Manchester City for you know a century. <laughs> it hasn't always been great. No, it's it's often been terrible. But it's always been English football. And the and the you can't just it's not as though it's a completely sterile like an agar plate you know a totally new environment in which we can plant this new seed and watch it blossom. There is an existing culture there. There is a culture. It's it's the fans there have grown up with English football. Their club has never been a classic exponent of it. Although you know City have won the league. Jonathan Wilson mentioned me the other day as an example of the type of off-air conversations we have. More managers. More managers have won the league with Man City than with Man United. So, you know, we're not, we're not talking about a league that... Uh, or a, nerd like, right. nonsense. That is true. I'm sorry. That's not, that's not nerd nonsense. That's just love of the game. Just a, just a, a, a fondness for the, for the details. You say tomato, Ken. Of the game, you know? Love of the game. Um, <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is there is a culture there which he, he can't ignore. I mean, he will, he will ignore it. He, this is the way he plays. It's non-negotiable. This, he's like, uh, it's not worth playing any other way. If I was to change it, 
start doing the Tony Pulis or the Jurgen Klopp or you know some other type of football he doesn't agree with, then I, I what's the point? I'm betraying everything that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm never going to do that. But the reality has to be recognised that the fans are also used to seeing things done a different way, and in that you know initial period, there's going to be scepticism, which he's going to have to overcome. This is why Guardiola is, is, is such an interesting figure, really, because he still, despite this brilliant record of success, uh, all the, you know, the two Champions Leagues, league titled six seasons out of seven that he's been a manager, um, and his teams have played incredible football. But is it because it was Barcelona and Bayern Munich? Or is it because he brought an extra, a real extra dimension? That's still... Hmm, you don't know. I mean, when you read this book, he talks about, this is the more recent one, you know, going to Munich. And I couldn't believe sometimes the air of, this unmistakable air of kind of condescension talking about these Bayern players. You know, uh, talking about the gift. Uh, the, he's always sort of speaking about, uh, or I don't know if this is Pep or, or Marty Perrineau, but they're talking in terms of or, orchestral music, mm. which I think is actually a reasonable um, metaphor for this given that Pep himself styles himself like a great orchestral maestro, literally behaves like one, moves like one on the sideline. And then you've got, you know, a, a, a complex uh, unit. You know, it's a, they're all trying to produce the same sort of symphony. Um, he's like the Andre Ryu of football. He, <laughs> I don't know if he's the Andre. Maybe Jurgen Klopp is more the Andre Ryu. Mm. You know, Bernie more, more the... A bit the more flamboyant. Furt Wengler or... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, one of those. I love that you had another composer's name just to have there. I'm impressed. Food Wengler. Um, but you know, uh, where was this thing? What did they say about the Bayern players? Here it is. Hang on, where is it? Uh, the, Munich, the Munich Philharmonic would interpret the same piece of music differently from the Barcelona Symphonic. He's talking about like how, sure, the musicians at Barcelona were a bit better, but these, these Munich guys, you know, this is, this is still a pretty damn good squad. I'm kind of like, what are you talking about? They were just, just won the treble. They're the Champions League. They crushed Barcelona 7-0. Most of them won the World Cup. Like. They're, br- they're brilliant. You have a brilliant squad of brilliant players. And there's this sort of, you know, I, I think I can do something with these guys. You're like, you know, would it be fair to say anyone could have managed those guys? <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but... A lot of, of a course, lot of guys could of course not. A lot of guys could, could do well. So anyway, that's that's what we were saying. You know, as as to whether I'm hurt, I mean I would I wouldn't say that. Well no, you've just gone back and brought that up again though. Oh. A number of minutes later. I wouldn't say so. What are off a duck's back? Oh no, my Scottish accent was terrible. My James McCarthy is terrible, but it is water off a duck's back to you again. Yeah. That no, wasn't that bad, um, Champions League? So where are we? Uh, obviously, Man City had another disappointing result, albeit with a team which was uh, not really their first team. Um, and a girl scored against them by one of their own players, <laughs> by for Celtic. Uh, little Roberts scored the um, opening goal before Ianacho equalised for uh, City. Another decent performance by Celtic, although they do finish without a win. Um, but Brendan Rodgers will have enjoyed these couple of games, I think, against the, the maestro. Uh, you could see him at the end shaking hands, with, or trying to shake hands with Guardiola, waiting patiently to shake hands with Guardiola, while Guardiola, who never complains about decisions, ranted and raved at the fourth official, uh, until eventually noticing Rodgers sort of hovering, turning around, giving him a quick handshake, and then returning to berating this, uh, uh, this man. Uh, but, you know, um, as the book says... The book, the book talks a bit about how 
you know, Pep is often at his most crabby after a victory. Um, God, he doesn't say, he sounds like a bit of a miserable old sod, doesn't he? Pep. Pep. I can't imagine he's great after a defeat either. So if he's, <laughs> no, even, if he's even worse after a victory. Well, this is the thing. It strikes me that he's actually much worse after a defeat uh, than after a uh, than after a victory. But you've got like, um, I mean, there are at least some problems that he doesn't have. You know, he's got ninety nine problems. But uh, okay, here's here's one of Pep's friends talking to Marty Pernell. He says, "I call it the threat of success." When you win, you create the illusion that everything's fine. There's an enormous temptation to focus solely on the positive result rather than all the things that went wrong or could have gone wrong. We all want to celebrate a victory, not analyze it. We go over and over that moment of triumph until we start thinking it was inevitable. Complacency is a dangerous foe. It can lead you to dropping your guard, missing opportunities, and making mistakes. It's a kind of paradox. Success and satisfaction are our ultimate objectives, but in the short term, they can create negative patterns of behavior that destroy our chance of great success and deep satisfaction. Gary Kasparov, <laughs> former um, champion of the world in chess. Of course, Near, so nearly a guest of ours. <laughs> <laughs> Back in we the were day. just sixty thousand US dollars in a comfortable chair away from interviewing <laughs> Gary Kasparov. Um, it's at least that the threat of success is one of the problems that Guardiola doesn't have right now. It's not a thing that he has to worry about. Should I mention just one other expert view that was given by a, a, another friend of Guardiola? Go on. In my view, Pep went to Bayern too soon. He would have been better taking not just one sabbatical year, but actually two or three to travel extensively and educate himself about the rest of the world. Um, basically, Pep has never developed a scientifically tested working methodology. That's why I encouraged him to visit MIT during his year in New York. It's the most pioneering center of innovation in the world, and I wanted him to meet Israel Ruiz, his executive vice president, see the work they're doing in their technology and design department, Media Lab. It's one thing to be a football expert who has watched thousands of games, but it's quite another to know how to apply scientific principles to your work. It's almost like your players are robots in whom you test your ideas, or at least that would be the ideal scenario in the scientific context. Um... It's the only way to get the mental space necessary to start decodifying the game and to begin to construct the right methodology. I did it. I closed my restaurant, El Bulli, put some distance between myself and my work, and then started to decodify cooking. That's Ferran Adria. The Doesn't sound like a real food man to me. <laughs> I don't know if food people would yeah, agree. F- look, food critics might. Uh, but I mean, do, they food come and go. Men, do food men really agree with what, what our gentleman has just said there? I mean, close it. If you want to, if you want to build the greatest restaurant of ever, first of all, close your restaurant. That's what he's he's basically saying. I'm I'm a much better cook uh, now than I was when I was running a restaurant. Um, here in MIT, in my lab, combining various foams and gel solutions. Um, but that's the, that's an example of the kind of high end company uh, that uh, that Guardiola keeps. And and you know, I just I just wonder what they make in England of this. In Brexit Britain, <laughs> this connection of continental eggheads and their decodification. You know, the best thing for Pep as a coach would be to just get away from football altogether. Go to MIT. Um, that's when he'd start to make some real progress. Anyway, we can't talk about him all day. No, we can talk about Arsenal, Ken, who put another Champions League beat down on their poor opponents this week, FC Basel. They're mm. through yet again to uh, Champions League knockout stage. So why do some of their best players want to leave? Well, do they, though, Owen? Do they? 
want to leave. Well, if there are stories being leaked out to the media again, then there's definitely only one thing that's going to happen. They'll leave the club rather than sign hefty new contracts. <laughs> we are fucked, blood. <laughs> but you might Arsenal be... Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> yeah, you might be uh, if you lose these players. Ozil and... Sanchez. Sanchez. Um, two pretty key players <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, the two key players in the team, two, both have 18 months left in their contract. Uh, Wenger speaking about it today. He says 18 months quite long in football. He says 18 months. They will be staying 18 months, hopefully much longer. Negotiations are private and secret. We don't have to explain what we do with negotiations. Luckily enough, we'll have Ian Lynham in pretty shortly to uh, spill the beans and what happens in, in these types of negotiations. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that uh, they both want um, to be paid the sort of money which is commensurate with their massive status in the, ga- in the game and also Arsenal's enormous income. So that's a lot more money than Arsenal are used to paying guys. Um, however, uh, losing these guys would be, uh, I guess, well, you've got to restart, try to build a new team if you lose these players. So I don't think they actually will lose them because what's the point of having that massive stadium in the, you know, one of the richest cities in the world and charging all those people all that money if at the end of the day you have to sell, like, Ozil uh, or, or Sanchez to Chelsea come on it's just not it just doesn't make any sense no well if they had to if it came to it they'd shovel them off abroad surely although you know they could always um, they could always look at um, Dortmund and mm-hmm. go go there and take some of their players because it looks as though Dortmund really are I mean if you saw any of their game last night absolutely brilliant um, this is against a Real Madrid team that is uh, has just equaled well at the draw that they got ultimately equaled Real Madrid's club record for unbeaten games. Real Madrid's club record is thirty four matches, um, and they equaled it last night. So that's kind of how well Real Madrid are playing. And Dortmund are two 0 down, uh, get a draw, scoring beautiful goals um, with a bunch of players who you know there's there's like a. 20, 20, 21-year-old players on this field. I mean, I'm sure Arsenal are, will try to buy all of them at some point. But it's incredible. I mean, if you look at Dortmund, even their fans are young. Serious. Look at the look at Dortmund. Look at the fans in the stadium when they show them. It's like, these guys are 15 years younger than the English football fans. It might have something to do with it being affordable. Completely, yeah. <laughs> for young people. But you can literally see there's a lot of, you know, People in their 20s. Well, and they have that big the terrace as well, which is probably quite conducive to getting people into getting, the habit. Getting young people, especially into the habit of going, you know, it might be seen as a bit more cracked than going and sitting down in the posh seats. They uh, broke. In Premier League grounds, they're all posh. All the seats are posh. <laughs> they are. And occupied by, um, I mean, just, you know, it's just, you, you, you can see the faces. You can see it's a more, it's a more middle aged crowd, a more choleric crowd maybe in some ways um, than these Thorburn boys. But they broke the record anyway for yep. the 21 goals in six uh, group matches is a record 14 against Legia Warsaw, obviously, but that's still quite respectable. Well, that's it for Kennedy's report on sport. What, you, what are you saying? You're just a phony, man. This is just what happened. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. I don't play this, man. You can't 
teach that. Okay, delighted to be joined in studio now by Ian Lynham, who's a sports lawyer and head of the sports group at Charles Russell Speechley's Law Firm. Ian, thanks very much for making it into us. Hi, guys. I know you met Ken over in Lisbon and you guys chatted about a couple of things, which we're, we're going to tease out here. But you've dealt with some pretty, um, some very high-profile footballers and deal with uh, the likes of Thierry Henry, Raheem Sterling, Cesc Fabregas. You've worked with the big clubs. Uh, yeah, I suppose I've been you know, lucky in kind of fall into a, a, an interesting area of law, you know, um, mm. and we do a lot of work in football, a lot of work across other sports as well, but football would be the sport, obviously, that drives the, uh, the sports industry in the UK, so that would be, uh, you know, at least half of the work I do. Yeah. What, what about the negotiations themselves? I mean, have you read The Art of the Deal? Uh, I have. The... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in in negotiations and 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 I suppose uh, strategies and, and and psychology around negotiations. I, I just wrote a chapter in the the negotiator's desk reference, uh, you know, which is uh, going to be a massive seller uh, this Christmas. Um, it's you know particularly snappy title. Uh, the uh, it's like I think it's eighteen hundred pages long. Uh, you know, unlike other uh, you know August publications that are on sale this Christmas, there, there is definitely not free postage and packaging to, to anywhere. Well, I was uh, going to say people could read that and then for a bit of light entertainment afterwards, maybe yeah. bump into get into the sports annual, yeah, the sports annual volume too. <laughs> uh, that sounds very sensible. Yeah, the um, what uh, I wrote a chapter in that on on, on team negotiations. So understanding um, people's motivations, people's incentives, um, and um, and how they work um, is you know obviously. Has a has, has a significant role to play. I know something that it, you're quite interested in is the football analytics side of things, and yeah. how that can potentially be used to well to the advantage of, of players, and even in terms of you representing players. Can you maybe explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I think analytics has you know it's got a, a fairly wide uh, variety of roles in football. Um, you know, people will understand uh, primarily, or the the most obvious uh, use is in relation to identifying players you know for a club so to identify the players to identify the type of player it needs then actually helping them to identify that player um, and then maybe also understanding the value of that player so within a club as regards how they're going to pay him what they should pay him um, and what we've seen in the last uh, number of years is you know a number of clubs in England using data using analytics um, not as many as people think, and it's certainly uh, not. Uh, it's still something that is, you know, struggling to gain traction. But there are some clubs. Well, what, what percentage of clubs say in the Premier League? The, I mean, if you ask the clubs, every club will say yes. We do yeah. analytics. Now, it's, it's you know, what, what does do analytics mean? And mm. you know, at, at some clubs, we do analysis. You know, we every club does video analysis, obviously. Um, but it's it's to understanding the difference between video analysis and what we're talking about here which is basically looking for insight from from big data um or you know to the extent that you can call the data within football big but um and a lot of clubs will have data guys i mean at least half the clubs will have will have people um who, who would identify as, as as being um data analysts or data scientists but it relatively it, you know it's, it's all well and good having someone who understands data but Unless you can uh, integrate and incorporate that within your decision-making structure in an efficient way, then it's you know it's it's ultimately not so, bringing much so, benefit. So you've got a situation where there's a, a little team of guys uh, working away, crunching all these numbers, producing these uh, reports, and yeah. the reports just nobody reads. Yeah, or I mean, maybe people don't understand. So I mean, commu- it's um, you know if if. 
if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. Mm. You know, it, it, the, the communication piece is incredibly important and it needs to run in an un, unbroken train, uh, chain through the club. It's something actually Bill James said in, in Lisbon at, at that conference uh, we were at, that um, ultimately it needs to come from the owners, it needs to come from the top down, it needs to kind of, the culture needs to be absolutely, um, you know, interwoven uh, in the fabric of the club. And that hasn't happened at many clubs yet, that's for sure. Um but you know, you, you can see step by step, it 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 it's, it is happening. It was interesting. Sunderland announced their new kind of director of football a couple of weeks ago, uh, who's uh, Simon Wilson, who's a um, effectively the head of, of analytics at mm. Man City. Um, you know, very smart guy, very forward thinking. Man City seem to supply a lot of staff to other clubs. Actually, yeah. Don't they? yeah, well, Man City are a very very well well run football club. You mm. know, uh, was, I, everyone's always poaching guys from Man City. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the anecdotes that I was tell, you know, when you're trying to explain what a well-run football club looks like or what a good decision-making structure within a club looks like or what a good contract looks like. Um, you know, I kind of almost annoy myself to you. I find myself pointing to Man City a lot of the time. They're, uh, you know, yes, they have a lot of money, but... Yeah. Um, well, they're, they're a completely special case. Like, I mean, no one else can afford to... Is, is, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this to yeah. the inside. It seems to me they've got all this money. Of course... They've got a good setup, but like, could anyone else afford to run a setup? Yeah, like that? I mean, and they absolutely could. You know, it's, it's a case of prioritization. You know, you can run an, a good analytics department for you know five hundred thousand a year. I mean, including staff, data, everything. I mean, uh, I'm making up a number, but that's uh, that sounds fairly realistic to me. Um, there's a lot of money within football. Ultimately, it's a decision as to what you prioritize it. I mean, the other um, the club that you would point to is you know being uh, very data driven within football in England, Brentford in the Championship now. Obviously, Brentford. Have a lot less money, um, but mm. they're prioritising the money they do have and, and using it in a certain way. Because ultimately, uh, part of, um, I mean, what what this approach helps you do. It's, I mean, this isn't just about data. It's about trying to identify market inefficiencies. Mm. It's trying to identify areas, whether that's players or supporters around football, um, where you can gain an advantage over your opposition. And uh, it, it's actually more benefit to clubs with, with with smaller budgets because ultimately in football. Spending more means you're going to win. There's a pretty strong correlation between mm. the amount of money you spend on salary, on players, and success in the Premier League. So usually it's about 0.7 um, uh, um, in each season, um, mm. which that, that's a very high correlation. So the best way of, of achieving success in football is spending more money. But if you've only got a finite supply of money, then you've got to decide how to spend it. And that's, I think, where, where some of these approaches can help. When you say that Manchester City are exceptionally well run, mm. um, what, what are some of the... Can you give any examples of areas in which this becomes apparent, where their superior organisation translates to better uh, outcomes? Um, well, I mean, one example for me, I suppose, one of the, mo- the more direct uh, examples is... Um, is their contracts, the way they structure player contracts. So they've got quite a lot of variability of, of, of pay in how they pay players. If the club is successful, the players earn a, a lot of money. If the club has a bad season, um, doesn't do as well, or the player doesn't do as well, um, for whatever reason, then the contracts flex. So in, in football, your revenues flex based on your success, but traditionally, uh, your outgoings, your, your salary costs have been pretty fixed. Um, and that's something uh, that actually, you know, it's the Barcelona model. The, you know, the guys who run Man City came from Barcelona and they've brought quite a few of these approaches with them. I mean, Barcelona is obviously another very well-run football club. Mm. Uh, but I, I think the other example, is a more important example really, is the way they structured the football side of their the business, the, the, the football side of the football club, yeah. which, you know, is obviously something that's pretty important and um, can be almost an afterthought. At, at some clubs, I mean, historically in England, it's been a very manager-driven sport. Managers have had huge power, huge control 
over football clubs. And uh, City, you know, in the last five years have had um, an approach where obviously manager is the most important person on the football side of the club, but the the strategy is 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 above the manager. You know, the, the strategy, mm-hmm. the approach is something that's ingrained within the organisation. And ultimately, you know, the decisions that they're making in relation to the players that they're buying, those aren't being driven just by the manager or not even by the manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are, you know, being driven by people above him in the pecking order who, who will be there because managers come and go and, and in, in football you know the average tenure of managers is 18 months yeah well when you when you say that their contracts are, are quite flexible yeah what what would you say in in sort of ballpark percentage terms would be the difference for a Manchester City player uh, in terms of what they get paid between you know a season where they win the league yeah. or the Champions League and a season where they finish fifth and yeah. basically achieve nothing yeah, so I mean, the variability, their variability in their contracts would be um, about two thirds, one third. So two, two thirds fixed, two thirds fixed, one third variable. Right. Whereas you know the traditional Premier League model would be more like ninety eight percent probably fixed yeah. um, and a very small variability. When you, um, well, we were talking about we were talking about analytics, and this is every when people think about it, it's like this is something that clubs use. It's something clubs yep. use to try and see who's doing well in their squad. See who uh, they can, you know, which players suit them on the market. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, it can also be used by players to get more money. Yeah, sorry, I should have come back to that. So yeah, um, the I suppose what, what what I did was when we saw it being used more by clubs and you know in our role advising clubs, that's something that we would encourage um, all the time. Um, but when I got the other hat on, acting for players. Um, I was at the uh, the Sloan conference in, in in Boston, which is kind of like the, the sport nerd extravaganza in, um, in 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 Boston each year. Uh, I was at that three years ago, and there was a panel on negotiations. And one of the GMs, Daryl Morey of, of the Houston Rockets, was talking about how annoying he found it when he had agents coming in um, for negotiations with you know binders of of, of analytics. To, you know, to to discuss the area with him, and I suppose that kind of was a light bulb in my mind, thinking, well, God, you know, if clubs are using this in football, we should really be using it from the player side as well, you know, and meet them effectively on a level playing field, because if they're using this data to understand the players that they want to recruit and how much they should pay them, then uh, you know, the, the players and the agents should be understanding that as well, and should be using that um, in the negotiation to, uh, you know, to, to drive their value. Um, so you know, we've taken that approach. Um, I mean, there's a company uh, we work with 21st club um, who you know work right across the, the data and football piece clubs players etc and um, we'll use them effectively as as you know uh, a, an analytics department for the player in putting forward um, uh, you know arguments or you know what, what you put forward as objective arguments as to uh, the value of a player what kind what kind of arguments because yeah. this is the whole this is kind of goes goes to the um, like the the difficult thing to know is what measures are relevant. Yes. So how do you you know when, when you go in a club could just sit there and say you know take ons sixty percent yeah. don't care no you know yeah. it doesn't have any effect yeah. on sure uh, so yeah. so what so, what kind of measures are you yeah, talking I, about I, that you do bring I, that do make yeah. a difference and there is a challenge because you know the clubs are investing a lot of money in this and they're developing a lot of proprietary information and they're not they're not going to share that with you as part of a negotiation they've effectively got a black box so when they when you sit down to to meet with them. Um, they're not going to say, um, you know, they might say, well, we disagree with your conclusions, but they're not going to share their model with you as, as to why that is the case. Mm. And that makes it challenging. So you do have to focus on um, 
uh, you know, things that that are more easily agreed uh, as between the, the the different sides. So, you know, on the most basic level, uh, the um, uh, you know when, when we first did it three years ago, and uh, Alex Song, uh, for example, um, was was looking for you know move back to to, to England, and it was about using the data to highlight. Um, aspects of his play that maybe clubs would have overlooked. So they would understand that Alex Song, um, and he'd been playing central defender a lot for Barcelona. So, you know, this is, uh, you, you can't just take his data set as a central defender and say, hey, look at this. This looks, you know, yeah. it, it, it doesn't mean anything. So you know, firstly, I mean, and this isn't massively sophisticated, but it's isolating the games which he's playing central midfielder. And then it's looking at his contribution as a, as a, a defensive midfielder. And, and most importantly with him, it, it was to highlight, uh, Alex Song is very good at playing through balls. Right? Yeah. So Alex Song plays successful through balls um, at a rate that's very unusual for um, for a defensive midfielder. Um, so it's basically then using data to show that, comparing him to to other players, and especially if you're dealing with a club that values through balls, that has maybe fast attacking players, it's to try and give them an understanding as to how that might fit and what kind of an upgrade that. So you compare, let's say, um, let's say at the time you, you were dealing with um, Liverpool and uh, the their current defensive midfielder did all the defensive work, but didn't contribute in an attacking way. So you'd show that, look, Alex Song uh, delivers what your current uh, player Lucas delivers. Leiva. Lucas Leiva, Let's exactly. That's who it was. Delivers uh, in, in a defensive way, but also, um, uh, you know, brings this additional, uh, you know, 1.5 or whatever it was, you know, a successful through balls per game. So, I mean, that's fairly, uh, that's a fairly basic example. But to, to look at teams, I suppose, I mean, one thing, so one player we used it for was Raheem Sterling when he was moving. So th- and that was obviously there was two negotiations there. Firstly, with Liverpool in relation to to a new contract, and then ultimately with with City. And and with Raheem, now he's a, he was a very young player at the time. Um, so you were looking at data sets from when he was you know ni- up to nineteen years old. Um, and there was effectively two key kind of narratives that we were drawing out. One was um, Raheem's already performing uh, at that age at the level of an elite uh, Premier League wide attacking player. So that's comparing him against, um, you know, at the time, the Hazards and, um, uh, you know, I, I can't remember exactly do, do who mean, he used. So, so do you mean comparing, so the, comparing the 19-year-old Raheem Sterling against the 23-year-old Hazard exactly. or against the 19-year-old No, Hazard? against, for, for these purposes, it's saying today he is now performing at an elite Premier League level. So that's comparing him against current elite Premier League attacking players uh, and showing that, you know, as regards... You know, number of of assists per ninety, number of goals per ninety, number of uh, you know, of of successful actions per ninety. What, what he contributes to the team, um, and then the second part is looking at him as a nineteen-year-old against the greatest nineteen-year-old players, uh, um, kind of ever. So comparing him against what Messi looked like at nineteen, what Ronaldo looked like at nineteen, what Thierry Henry looked like, Robin, etc., um, and plotting him on a graph, basically um, saying, look, this is where these players were at that age. So it's kind of two things. It's saying, look, you're, you're you're paying this money for someone who currently is 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 playing at this level, but you're also you're also paying for the you know the upside potential of what this player can become. You're smiling at that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining. Uh, I'm just trying to imagine what looks crossed over the faces of the, uh, you know, club negotiators <laughs> when the craft was produced saying, look, the fact is Raheem is massively outperforming Cristiano Ronaldo at this age. So, you know, you guys, are, this is going to cost you guys a lot of money. Yeah. And look, I mean, the development of players like this, you know, you, you, the, the development of players is, isn't, isn't linear um, and it's... Um, it's ultimately, I mean, what this is all about is, is trying to use data to, to make better predictions about the future. It's not, it's, 
in in no way foolproof. Um, and it's um, it's like in basketball, you know, what they talk about when they only get the chance to draft kind of once a year, and you only have really two picks that mean anything. So you're trying to you're trying to, to win the lottery, and and all all data is doing is is giving you a better chance of making better decisions. Um, but obviously, in a negotiation, you're not seeking ultimate truth or objective truth, right? You're trying to, you're, you're, you're obviously presenting accurate data, but you're always trying to, to use it to, to better your position, whatever side yeah, you're on. To make your own, yeah, to yeah. make your own argument, I guess. I mean, there's the Sean Ingle piece about Barcelona this week. Cause it's funny you mentioned that the Barcelona are so uh, well run and so into that kind of thing. This was the football IQ test that's been developed by yeah, he, it was a couple of Swedish people in Scandinavia. It looks pretty interesting. And they, they were welcomed to Barcelona to test the football IQ of some of their players. Mm. Uh, not surprisingly, well, this is centered mainly around yesterday. This article actually, he scored particularly highly in some. Areas. Well, well, Sean, I think Sean was saying like there's basically these these Swedish guys had had developed sort of <coughs> they were little psychologists who like were had developed kind of cognitive tests uh, based around just stuff that happens on a computer screen. You know, like repeating patterns. You've got to draw a little pattern or you know whatever. I haven't personally done the test, so I can't tell you too much more about the detail. But um, you know, stuff that looks quite abstract and and obviously doesn't have anything to do with football. But uh, they found that when they tested, you know, Andres Iniesta and Xavi, they sort of performed exceptionally in uh, in certain uh, in certain tests, which they had basically. Um, for instance, one of them was one that Iniesta was particularly good at. I can't remember the name of the test, but essentially the nature of the test was that you design fluency. This is the one that he did pretty well. Was it? Was that it? Yeah. So I guess it, it, it was a measure of how easily you can change learns behavior to accommodate a new thing. Oh, that's the inhibition. Yes, and yes it was in the top 0.1% for design fluency. Design fluency examines creativity under pressure. And he also scored extremely highly in what neuroscientists call inhibition. I'm reading this up. That's the one I'm talking yeah. about, inhibition. So inhibition, yeah. the ability to alter one's learned behavior and responses in a way that makes it easier to complete a particular task. So so one, one instance, I guess, I mean, you know, based on that description, Say, for instance, if you've ever played like a football video game mm. and you know that X is pass and circle is, you know, shoot. long pass right. and, bo- and box is shoot, right? And then someone s- switches the controls around. <laughs> Andres and Yester would be able to immediately adapt <laughs> to a situation that would be completely impossible for most people yeah, too. Yeah. No, but no, I play the other way around. Yeah. So, uh, so, for instance, uh, little sort of tests like that, which top footballers happen to be good at yeah. you know if if you're if you are a really good football player you will have these sorts of skills so i'm wondering if yeah. you know are, are, are what are the kind of current measures are there are, are yeah. there kind of new things like that that people are yeah. looking at I saying mean, my only my only hesitation about i, I read that article and it, have you seen raheem yeah. play fifa he is yeah. unbelievable <laughs> it was i read the article and it was very interesting the um but my 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 only um reservation or hesitation in relation to that test or look any 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 test like that is that um you know the kind of the next new thing comes along you know fairly regularly in football Mm -hmm. and the um uh, people you know get burnt uh when they try something and it it doesn't work um and the the, i suppose in in pulling it back to to data like the only thing worse than not using data is using data badly or using bad data uh because the and and football, you know, part of the hesitation uh, I think uh, in adapting in football is because to the extent that statistics have been used and are used, to be fair, um, particularly in the media, it's it's stats that don't mean anything, you know. And p- 
public aren't stupid. They understand that they eventually realise that these stats don't mean anything. That you know the number of meters you cover in a game, or your past completion levels, or um, even even possession sometimes doesn't necessarily mean nothing. That, no, that depends no, on a philosophy yeah, of management. Exactly. Company. Yeah, possession can tell you something about the style of play. But or I mean, like one thing last year, Marcus Rashford. Uh, so Marcus Rashford, uh, when he came into the team for Man United, scored seven goals from twelve shots. And there was a number of articles written in the newspapers about his finishing percentage um, and how he was a better finisher than Messi. And, um, you know, I mean, th- that left me flabbergasted that, uh, you know, at, I suppose, whether it was someone, a journalist, maybe just using the data to make a story, but it, it, the, the level of comprehension that it, you should look at a player who scores seven goals in 12 shots and say, he's been very lucky. That will not maintain because no one has ever converted goals at that rate ever in the history of football. Um, and instead, some people will look at that and say, and, and, and we'll, we'll see, um, well, maybe it's a confirmation bias that they see him scoring goals and they think well, he's a great finisher. And therefore, um, and so, I mean, things like that uh, in relation to, you know, people talk about, you know, finishing ability um, and, and conversion levels. And, you know, we'll look at one season of data and, you know, Jamie Vardy converted, you know, 28 percent of, of the shots or whatever, let's say last year. Um, and and. I suppose what analytics is is about is about isn't about looking at one piece of data or it's trying to um, you know go, go deeper and understand what actually is important and what helps you win football games. One one thing that puts people off football now, increasing numbers of people, is how revoltingly over commercialized the game is, particularly the players who are just walking billboards, more interested in making money from corporate mm-hmm. sponsors than you know, getting better at the thing that they're supposed to, that's supposed to be their profession. You actually think that the top players in the game currently are under commercialized, <laughs> under sponsored, uh, that they could actually be doing a lot more in this area. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, so there's two ways of approaching it. One is, you know, as, as a fan uh, or as, as, um, as a consumer of football, I'm not making the argument that they're under commercialized, no, but, as but, a, as a but from a business perspective, well, well, footballers are um, they, they do a lot less commercial deals than people think. Put it that way. The um, you know the average player, like even a, a Premier League, a, a star player in the Premier League, less than ten percent of their income will come from commercial deals. Their their club deal, their their salary from the club is you know by far and away the the, the dominant um, the dominant source of earnings. So most players will have one commercial deal, and that's their boot deal. Um, and that's it. And that'll, you know, maybe between five and ten percent of of their earnings. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's it's surprising to me when you look at at, at other sports um, and the um, the endorsement income generated from other sports. That it, it seems to me that there is probably there are probably still opportunities uh, within football for with the star players because currently it's you know the Messi's and the Ronaldo's who obviously have have massive. Um, in endorsement income, but but the next tier down, um, uh, it it, it uh, will have a surprisingly low number of of deals. Uh, any reason why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons is because football agents um, are are very good at what they do. And what they do is negotiate player contracts and transfers, and that's their skill set, that's their experience, that's where their contacts are. So, as regards, I suppose, building and commercialising a brand and having the um, the network the skills and the 
bandwidth ultimately to, to do that isn't necessarily something that most football agents or agencies are, are equipped um, to do. Now, there are people, commercial agents, agencies um, out there who do that work, but it can be difficult for them to get access to the players because often the player agent will be, you know, uh, incredibly protective and, and, and uh, he effectively is a gatekeeper for the player. So, you know, I don't think this is a problem within football. This isn't something... Uh, yeah, we're not going to cure the yeah, deals by getting players yeah, to, be, no, uh, to no, get some more I, deals. But it is no. interesting you feel that compared yeah. to other sports that they, they are sort of undersold, or not undersold, but that they, they could be making a little bit more uh, out, of, out of commercial deals. Yeah, and it's something that some of the clubs have recognised, I think. So there are a couple of the clubs in the Premier League, um, two of the bigger clubs, who now when they're signing a player and um, they're acquiring... Um, you know, and they're doing image rights deals to use the player's image, but they're not just acquiring the image rights of the players in the club context. So that's the right to use the player in the club kit, you know, in association with the club, promoting the club, promoting maybe the, the club's key sponsors. But they're actually acquiring all of the player's image rights, so including his personal capacity. So you know, that club can go to the market and do a watch deal for their player, do a soft drinks deal for their player without any club branding, no club insignia. So to the public, it just looks like it, it's a player deal. And it makes some sense when you think about it because these clubs now have massive, very sophisticated um, commercial departments with networks and um, you know reach around the globe. So they have effectively what they're doing is they're acquiring additional inventory um, for them then to, to, to do more deals. Okay, well listen, Ian Lynham, it's been fascinating listening to you. Thanks a million for uh, popping into us. Thanks for having me. McDevitt The Murphy and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt from Ireland's second captain show All up in the interweb Owen McDevitt World War Second captain those guys, are like, those guys are like family to me man Owen McDevitt This is Locke The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life Owen McDevitt All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it Stop talking about Tom Finney He said I was a loser This guy is a bit of a turkey <laughs> Alright he said I was a fucking soccer. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. World War. The new World Federated Championship. Owen McDevitt. Owen McDevitt. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Just going back to the Manchester City stuff, it is quite interesting what Ian was saying about them, how impressed he is in his line of work with how they run pretty much every aspect of their club. Mm. Just in regards to the conversation we had about Pep, that it seems like, okay, the fans are sceptical, but the people at the club won't be. You know, they, they're obviously, they obviously do things the right way. He will be given leeway. They won't be putting pressure. It's very different to working for Roman Abramovich, is what I'm saying. Oh, completely, yeah. Um, I mean, the... There, it is ultimately a little bit similar in that there is, you know, an owner or a little ownership group that has absolute power, um, but they have been really non-interventionist. Whereas Abramovich is at all the games and gets, you know, gets bored with what, he, what he's watching and wants to change things. Just gets bored and wants to change. Whereas you get the impression that the people who own City aren't watching, don't care, and are completely happy to leave uh, the running of it to this little management group that they have you know who who aren't who don't own the club but they do run it and those guys obviously have complete belief in in Guardiola I mean the reason that they're there 
was to bring him ultimately to the club, and they've succeeded in doing that. So they're, they're going to get total support. And I th- and I mean, I also think that the city fans are going to give total support as well. I mean, they want this to work out. You know, there's nothing they would love more than Guardiola to repeat what he'd done at his previous clubs. I'm just saying that, you know, in the heat of the moment, instinct takes over. You see Bravo pass the ball to Stones. There's Diego Costa advancing on Stones. Stones is, oh, no, what's he going to do? Instinct takes over. You know, it's all very well to, in the long, in the long run, I believe in Pep. I love this orchestral harmony. The symphonic, symphonic quality of our play today was really something, you know? Um, there was a real Goldberg variations feel to the way we, we unpicked West Brom's defense. You know, it was, it, was, it was beautiful. But, you know, there is still that little decor of every English football fan, or every fan of English football, I should say, which is screaming, get rid, which, is, which fears and hates the ball and wants to get rid of it and get it far away, kick it hard towards in the general direction of the other team's goal. And, you know, that's the, that's the challenge for Pep. Europa League tonight. What do you, you got to say? Well, Dundalk uh, can still get through. They're away um, to Maccabi Tel Aviv. Um, basically, what they need to do is get a better result than AZ. Um, it's, uh, but they're playing against a team that can get through, as in if Maccabi Tel Aviv beat Dundalk and AZ don't beat Zenit St. Petersburg, then Maccabi Tel Aviv will finish second. Um, if Dundalk win and AZ don't win, or if Dundalk get a score draw and AZ lose, then Dundalk will get through in second place. Um, so basically, get a better result than AZ, and and they've got a chance of doing. It. I don't think this. I, I I think there's every chance this, this could happen. I really do. Um, there's you know there's nothing to there's no, there's no reason to think that Maccabi Tel Aviv, who I think have scored three in their last eleven matches, mm-hmm. are capable of. Or, or there's, there's no reason to think that Dundalk couldn't beat them. And if they do, then as they'd have to beat St. Petersburg, which I think is unlikely. So win this game, and I think it's more than likely they're getting, tr- getting through. Sounds good. What about Manchester United's uh, <laughs> <laughs> barnstorming campaign through the Europa League? Well, they need a draw to be sure of getting through. Uh, there is a small possibility of elimination if they lose, as they've lost their other two um, as they've lost their other two away matches. Jose Mourinho has been having a good old moan uh, the team they're playing is Zorya Luhansk, but as Luhansk is in the area of Ukraine in, in which there's currently a war, uh, the match is being played in Odessa, in the south of uh, in the south of the country. Although it's still apparently very cold, uh, which is what Rina has been complaining about. This is what he says. He says, they're putting some warmth on it, but it's very difficult. People cannot make miracles. Let's hope everything goes okay. The pitch is hard and very icy. I think UEFA know the conditions of the pitch. Everyone knows that in mid-December, conditions in Ukraine and Eastern Europe are more difficult. If UEFA are worried about it, they should change the fixtures and not allow them to be played in mid-December. Um, uh, but that's the problem. The hotel's good, stadium good, pitch bad. But it's cold. I know it's difficult to have a better pitch. The stadium is beautiful and new. The pitch is the same. They're trying. <laughs> good show today, Ken, but I have to say... I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. Thanks, Ken. I can't believe that all those cups of tea that I made back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Literally thrown back, scalding hot in your face. Would you yeah. like a cup of tea, John? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Murph. 
Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks so much Owen. for listening. We uh, have a listen to our live shows. If you haven't had a chance to yet, the shows in Liberty Hall Theatre, where we had a great time on Sunday night. Uh, those shows, shows have been out for the last few days. And also, later on, we'll have a podcast which will feature Jerry Thorney on Connacht Rugby this season, and more particularly, Pat Lamb's shock departure. And also, Thomas Barr is going to be in studio, one of the stars of Irish Sport in 2016. So, good show. Coming up later. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.